Hello, hello, friends, and welcome back to She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share the story of a woman of history and/or legend previously unknown to me. Today, for season two, episode two, I want to share the story of the fascinating historical queen of Palmyra, Zenobia, the woman who founded an empire. A short-lived empire, but an empire, nonetheless. I've been reading this really great history book by Douglas Boyne called Alaric the Goth, An Outsider's History of the Fall of Rome, which was a birthday present from my sweet husband. It's a really fascinating account of the life of a man who eventually sacked Rome, spoiler alert, and Zenobia is only mentioned as context for that particular story. So I was reading, kind of had this throwaway sentence about Queen Zenobia, and I was like, oh my gosh. So this, of course, led to a rabbit hole, which has eventually brought you, dear listener, here to listen to me talking about this awesome woman. So to set the stage a little bit, we've actually talked about Palmyra before, in Season 1, Episode 19, called Regina, Freed Woman. Palmyra, as a brief reminder, is a super, super ancient city that long predates Rome, going back to the 2nd millennium BCE, at least. The events of Regina's life took place in around the mid-2nd century BCE, but Zenobia was born in 240 CE, meaning it's been about 400 years since the last time you and I visited Palmyra. And the world is pretty different at this point in time. So if you remember, Regina's husband was originally from Palmyra and was possibly a merchant, but ended up marrying Regina, a former slave, in England. I'm refreshing this for you because I think it says something about the Roman Empire of that time, that a man could begin his life in Palmyra, which by the way, is still a city today in modern-day Syria, and ended in Roman-controlled England. That is a very far distance for someone to travel, um, and the fact that he was able to do so successfully uh, is uh, pretty, pretty impressive. But by the time we get to the 3rd century CE, which is just a few hundred years later, well, Rome is having a rough century, let's just put it that way. Just a couple of years before Zenobia was born, Emperor Severus Alexander was assassinated, which kicked off what historians now call the Crisis of the Third Century, also known as Military Anarchy or the Imperial Crisis. So this lasted most of this entire century, and Zenobia's story is a part of this. But just to say that the last time we visited Palmyra, it was this big bustling center of trade for Rome, Um, It is still that at the beginning of our tale, but sadly, this is sort of the story of the rise and rapid fall of an attempt at a Palmyran empire. Okay, so as I said, Zenobia was born around 240 CE in Palmyra, which was a fairly diverse city at the time. She could have been of Aramean or Arab blood, and there's some question over whether or not she could be considered Jewish. I mean, religiously speaking, she certainly wasn't, as she was a pagan. And basically all I could gather is that no Jewish sources seem to claim her as being Jewish, but some non-Jewish sources do. Um, I think probably because the cultural mixing in Palmyra was largely of Semitic origin. Now, it would be a thousand episodes to cover all the political and social reasons why 
certain sources would want to claim her as Jewish and others would not. Um, so I'm not really going to go there. But it's safe to say that Palmyra consisted of a variety of Semitic tribes, and Zenobia would certainly have been associated with some of them. We don't really know a ton for sure about her background and upbringing, except that she was very unlikely to have been a commoner, as she was very well educated. The Historia Augusta claims that she loved to hunt as a child, Though, there's another interesting controversy surrounding how her personality is described. Some describe her as very feminine and beautiful. Indeed, even the Historia Augusta says, quote, Her face was dark and of a swarthy hue. Her eyes were black and powerful beyond the usual want. Her spirit divinely great, and her beauty incredible. So white were her teeth that many thought that she had pearls in place of teeth. But other sources ascribe many more masculine qualities, possibly to make her a more formidable match for her male opponents. No greater shame than going up against a woman, am I right? Blech. Still, given her cleverness and military might, it feels like it matches up that she may have had some active hobbies as a kid, such as hunting. She also spoke Egyptian, Greek, Latin, and her native Aramaic awesome. So, when Zenobia is 14, she's married off to a guy named Odanathus, who has an interesting history of his own. What you need to know is that there are three important power centers in this story, Rome, Palmyra, and Persia. Persia is an enemy of Rome, kind of like Rome's big bad at the time, and Odanathus is a Palmyran from an aristocratic family who had been granted Roman citizenship which is like a huge deal. It's a big deal to be a Roman citizen. So Odanathus is pro-Rome. He's pretty good at war and basically just keeps backing the right horses when crises come up in his life, both in the sense of siding with Rome versus the Persians. Um, and he does lead his forces to some stunning victories over the Persians, but also with regards to internal politicking when he supports Emperor Gallienus over a usurper, and takes care of, in the mafia sense, one of the usurper's sons who was supposed to lock down the East in support of his dad's uh, usurpery, usurptation, I don't know what the word would be, but you get what I mean. So Odanathus takes care of this usurper's son, um, the usurper goes away, and Rome is super grateful and the emperor awards him with all of these awesome honors and titles, basically giving him authority over Palmyra. And then to kind of stick it to Persia after all of his victories, Odanathus declares himself king of kings, which is a very particular title for this region of the world, and he's just like, that's me, king of kings. This is a really important bit of info to pause on, because Odanathus is in a super unique position, which will eventually lead to Zenobia's unique position. The historian Gary K. Young even states that, quote, to search for any kind of regularity or normality in such a situation is clearly pointless. So what he's saying is that Odanathus is in a really strange position for someone in power in a province ruled by Rome. So the important thing is this. From a Roman perspective, Odanathus is pretty much like 
all other vassal states that are bound up in and subservient to the Roman Empire. He's been granted some power and honors, which importantly are his alone. They are not hereditary or like divinely resourced or anything like that. He is rewarded for his duty. He's given authority over Palmyra, but that's that's it. But from a Syrian perspective, motherfucker is now a king. Being a king is a hereditary position and one of great power and authority. So the king of kings thing became a lot more important than the Romans probably thought at the time, because a lot of historians suggest that Rome probably just didn't really get that. The cultural divide was pretty strong. So Rome was like, okay, like you can have a party, celebrate stuff, use whatever, you know, silly foreign titles you want, like King of Kings. But obviously, you know, obviously, you're still subject to Rome's authority, wink, wink, right? Okay, so that's the situation. Odanathus uh, is in this weird place where Rome has granted him all these titles and stuff. He's also gone ahead and claimed kingship for himself. um, And Rome hasn't really worked out that that could be an issue in the future. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit. Spoiler alert, Odanathus gets himself all assassinated and stuff in 267. Usually, this kind of thing would be a serious cause for concern. Power vacuums have led to a lot of upheaval throughout history. And as I said, it's not like Odanathus was in anything remotely resembling a kind of standard position with an obvious what comes next. Um, He was in a weird and precarious and very new position. So this would probably have been prime time for some serious overhauling of Palmyra's entire system, or for some opportunist to sneak in and take power, or for the Roman emperor to say, oh, this is a great opportunity to reward some other jerk who did me a good turn. However, Zenobia has not been some wilting background flower of a wife while Odanathus has been going around kicking ass. No, according to some accounts, Zenobia actually accompanied her husband while he was on campaign, which was probably a serious morale booster for soldiers who saw her, kind of like an ancient USO show or something. So the thinking is that she was a known and possibly beloved person, which would explain why the transfer of power turned out as smoothly as it did. There's even some thought that she was maybe actually with her husband when he was assassinated, because apparently it was like literally one day um, Odanathus was assassinated, and then the army was like, bah, he's been killed. Here, Zenobia, you take the crown. Side note, there are some who think Zenobia may have had something to do with his assassination. And I mean, it kind of makes sense. Odanathus was murdered with his oldest son and heir, who was not Zenobia's child, whose name is Volabathus. So it is kind of convenient timing that Odanathus is assassinated. Uh, The soldiers are all like, oh, let's just like let Zenobia deal with this, and then she immediately gives all of her deceased husband's titles to her son. So that helps solidify stability in rule. So father to son, that's a thing people are very familiar with. But here is where that cultural misunderstanding between Rome and Palmyra comes into play. While Zenobia can certainly pass down the title King of Kings, as we said, this is a hereditary thing, she can say, okay, my husband is dead, 
Uh, now the heir apparent is my son, and that means he is now the king of kings. She couldn't do that with the Roman titles. As I said, Roman titles in that sense were not just passed down. So the Romans didn't really love this particular situation because it means that the person who is now ruling Palmyra, who's ostensibly Zenobia's son, but in practice really her, um, is not someone who has been granted honors by Rome, but is someone who just inherited the power from his father, which he has legitimate claim to because his father was king, but technically they are still subservient to Rome and should be doing things the Roman way. So it's an awkward situation, I think you can now see. But like I said before, a peaceful transition of power is a rare and wondrous thing in our world. And even though everyone seemed to be like super aware that this was all Zenobia, a woman's doing, and that she was effectively the regent, everyone on the ground was pretty chill with it. We don't have any records of any grumblings against Zenobia in these early days. So even though this was a really awkward situation for Rome, it was probably in their best interest to just let things lie for now because peace was being maintained and Zenobia was still paying lip service to Rome. She was like, no, no, yeah, status quo. Like, yes, my son is the king of kings and I'm, you know, the queen reigning over this. But, you know, obviously we are still just a part of the, the big old family that is Rome. And now for the best part. So Zenobia's Palmyra was a really fucking interesting place. Zenobia welcomed philosophers and academics of all bents to come to the city. And eventually, it even rivaled Athens as a center of learning and culture. She also had the tricky job of placating the many cults, cultures, and ethnicities that made up this great city. And apparently, she did a great job of it, wearing many hats from Roman empress to Syrian queen to Hellenistic ruler. She fortified small cities so they were better protected. She expanded the influence of Palmyra so that it was a much bigger area than it was previously. And she restored mighty landmarks. There's one particularly interesting story about this huge monolith that apparently whistled due to cracks. So like it was cracked and wind would come through it and make a weird singing whistling sound. Um, and her restorations silenced it. She very cleverly kept the Roman administrative systems in place all over the various cities and towns within her domain. And this was really clever because Rome became what it was, at least in part because of systems like that. But critically, she appointed governors herself, which ensured that they would be loyal to her, not to Rome. So she slowly, slowly started laying the groundwork for rebellion and independence. So 271, which is about four years after she took power, is the earliest that we have evidence of Zenobia's beginning to overstep in a kind of serious way because she starts using the title the pious, Zenobia the pious, on coins, which was reserved only for Roman empresses. For a while, she still tries to, like, pay lip service to her subservience to Rome. Uh, she mints coins that have both her and the emperor's face on them, but eventually this facade is torn down and Zenobia starts straight up minting coins with only her face. And the emperor, who is Aurelian at this point, 
he decides it's time to march east to deal with this situation. Eventually, open conflict occurs. Bang, we've got a war. And Zenobia's force of 70,000, that's 70,000 warriors she led, actually nearly defeated Aurelian. Like I said, this was kind of a rough century for Romans in general. Um, So we came very, very close to a Palmyran victory here, but apparently her troops got overexcited when they were initially so successful, and that caused them to break their ranks, uh, which eventually allowed for the Roman forces to defeat them. See? Roman discipline and administration. Tough to beat. Zenobia fled to Palmyra to prepare for a siege, and apparently she decided to ride, quote, a female camel, the fastest of its breed and faster than any horse, uh, to make her escape. But unfortunately, Aurelian discovers her plan to flee, and she gets captured. I'm not really sure how, because it said that the camel was faster than any horse, but apparently... They had some good horses, and they caught up with her and captured her. So the army's been defeated, rebellion has been squashed, and Zenobia and her son, but most importantly Zenobia, has been captured. What happens after this is a little uncertain, so some say she was killed right away. But more likely, she was subject to a number of humiliations to make an example of her to other would-be Roman usurpers. One account claimed that she was paraded through cities on a camel in shame, kind of like Circe in Game of Thrones, except uh, we have no reason to think that she was naked, so don't make that analogy. But another source claims she was chained to a high seat in a hippodrome, which is like an arena for chariot racing, for three days so the citizens of Antioch could see this defeated queen. Now, some say that after her humiliation, she was beheaded, But it is also possible that she was simply sent to a villa outside of Rome to live out her days, possibly married off to a Roman senator or someone else. In fact, the villa she supposedly occupied has become a tourist attraction. Some have even claimed descendancy from her through the supposed children she may have had from this alleged second marriage, or even through her daughters, one of whom may have even married Aurelian after Zenobia was dethroned. This last bit I found particularly interesting, that Aurelian might have considered marriage to the daughter of this deposed queen. It certainly says something about her power and influence, even in the face of a stunning defeat. So Aurelian pretty much raised Palmyra to the ground, and it then kind of became a city of very, very little consequence um, throughout the centuries until now. Um, It does still have a lot of ruins of great value, which have unfortunately had a ton of damage done to them in the conflicts in that region over the last five to ten years. But it is good to know that Zenobia herself is an extremely popular and well-known figure in Syrian culture. Her story has been documented in many poems, songs, and even movies throughout history. I know I, for one, am glad to know that Zenobia Queen of Palmyra existed. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time.